Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least? The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. This week, I'm joined by Professor Alistair Chesser. Thanks for joining me on my podcast to talk about health and the future of health. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, well, you know, I know you've been a doctor for a long time and um, at Bart's Trust, but, you know, the big questions that are coming to healthcare systems around the world are how are we dealing with ageing populations, narrowing tax bases, but also all these sort of new technology, new medicines, digitalisation of health coming at speed. What do you see as the big things for, for you know, organisations like NHS? Well, <clears throat> on your first point, the NHS is a huge employer. In many boroughs in the country, the local hospital um, will be their biggest employer. Um, so <clears throat> we are, we're not just serving society, we are society in many ways. And mm -hmm. it's important, I think, that we reflect that um, in our senior leadership as well as in, in the rest of the NHS. Um, and the way the NHS is designed, which is much beloved and rightly so in my opinion, is it's all about equity. Everybody gets equity of access. That doesn't always um, manifest itself at the moment. Um, and we need to make sure that those groups who find it hard to access healthcare get better access to healthcare. Um, and th there's always more to do on that, uh, particularly where I work in the East End of London. Um, what do we need to do? Um, well, we're, we're living in a world, I think, where people are living longer. Um, and we can do more and more to keep people well and to keep people alive. Um, and that is increasingly expensive. All of that's very good news. Um, but uh, the NHS will always have a finite resource and probably an almost infinite demand made on it. And we're beginning to see how difficult that can be um, at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so do you, you know, the NHS is going through digitalization, you know, like other healthcare systems around the world. I think Matt Hancock famously tried to um, eradicate fax machines from primary care or GP's surgeries by 2020. I think that sort of deadline or target came and went. But, um, you know, is digitalisation coming to the NHS at the sort of right speed, do you think? I think we all would like to be more digital more quickly. Um, and it, the way it's developed in the NHS has been somewhat piecemeal over many decades. Um, having said that, the pace is accelerating, I think. Uh, my own hospital, we've just introduced electronic prescribing um, behind many hospitals, ahead of some others. Um, and that's a step change in terms of efficiency and safety uh, of, of the way we handle drugs. We're getting better at giving patients access to their records, but we've got a long way to go. Um, we're getting better at communicating with patients in ways other than just writing them letters which go through the post. But again, we do a lot of that still. Uh, and we're getting better at communicating with each other within the NHS, but it's still in many parts of the country difficult if you work in a hospital to see the GP's records and vice versa. 
and difficult to see what's been going on in another hospital. Uh, and in a perfect world, you would think that that would be a no-brainer. Um, so the sooner we get to the point where we can see a patient's health record wherever we are in the UK and patients get appropriate access to their own records at the same time, the better. And we still got a way to go on that. Mm. And there are still a few fax machines. <laughs> well, in Australia, we've got MyGov, which is, um, or My Health Record, which is personalised healthcare record that you can access on your device. Um, but it's still not, you can't you know, access it across, you know, it's mm. it, it, through different hospitals. And our problem mm. in, in Australia is we have a federal and a, health, a state healthcare system. So it's even more piecemeal in that way than the NHS. But I presume you have, because it's a more standardised system, or it's all centralised, I should say, a more centralised system, do you think the opportunity for patients to be, you know, able to access their own healthcare record is in the in the foreseeable future or do you think there are privacy issues that will remain or consumer concerns well we have we do have a central spine in the nhs and everyone has a unique nhs number but each hospital has its own it system many of the same system because there's only a few companies building them now but it doesn't imply interoperability um as a given uh, that all has to be worked through um, so the, the concept of having a, sim, a single ICT system for the NHS, I think, is one which has, has been tried and not succeeded in the past. And now it's more about joining up the systems we've got. Um, so uh, there's opportunities in there, but it has been frustrating for, for those working in it, I think, over the last 20 years to see the speed of progress. Having said that, um, all these things can be joined up. Um, and we've got really an unrivaled um, set of opportunities in big data uh, for research, uh, for epidemiological study, um, and for um, combining stuff for our academics to study. And, and there's a lot of that going on in the NHS, and there's a scope for a lot more of it to go on. We do need to get over some of the issues around um, access to data and patients' consent. Uh, COVID was a, a time when we really surmounted some of those barriers by knocking down some of the some of the logistical boundaries to it. Um, but there is rightly nervousness about um, using data which patients aren't aware that we are using it. Um, so we have to we have to be cautious with that. Mm. It's interesting in in Australia we had um, a lot of concerns about COVID Safe app that we developed so that people could you know more readily um, move in and out of sort of restaurants or, 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 you know, get about the community because we had the you know, world's longest lockdown in Melbourne where I live. And um, the concern by the public about government having access to data was was quite extraordinary when you think about private, you know, internet companies having access to lots mm. of data that we all carry. So there seems to be a, a real disconnect between um, being able to be, you know, using data in a useful way um, and concerns about who owns that data and who's, who, who is actually controlling that data. Yes, I've, and it's you know it's very healthcare data is just about as personal as it gets, um, and so there's a need for reassurance to people, um, yeah. reassurance that the data won't be misused and that the laws are there to make sure it's not misused uh, without consent. Um, but a lot of it is about trust, um, and if people feel they can't trust healthcare systems or or governments or whatever it may be, then there's naturally going to be a, a reticence um, to, to go along with sharing of data. So 
one can understand why, um, but I think the more people understand what what we want to use data for, which is usually anonymized uh, research for for the general good of the population, that's the sort of thing that brings people along. Mm. I mean, I think often you know consumers are interested in if it if it helps them in some way, and I think that's why you know the sort of private internet companies people allow their data to be used because they need to be able to track where they want to go to a restaurant or they might be using data to communicate with other people. And I think in health, we're not at that point now where people are using data to help their own health, to be more autonomous in their own health. And I remember going to a, a conference in the US once about 15 years ago and you know, this great innovator said he used to be, as a cardiologist, someone who would uh, order an ECG um, for someone who had you know, palpitations and, and then they'd have to discuss what next and it would take days for a result. And now he had this you know, online app that his patients could self-diagnose AF and they'd ring up and say, I'm in atrial fibrillation, what next, doc? So that you know, power mm. of putting knowledge in the hands of the consumer, including apps um, on phones to nudge behaviour or to improve you know, the way we sleep or the way we walk or the way we run, those sorts of things are, you know, coming onto the marketplace. But I think often the big organisations are a bit leery about using them. Are you using any of those sort of consumer behaviour support apps within the NHS? We are. We are. Um, not universally all the time, but often in innovative areas with practice spreading um, and trying to, to overcome the, the interface with our own ICT systems and all the the annoying boundaries we set up for ourselves. But there's more and more of that going on, apps being developed and, and utilised. Um, so, so yes, I think is the short answer. There's a lot of mental health ones out there particularly. There are, yeah. there are. And we are also at the same time and catalyzed by, by the technology, I think. We're seeing the, the, the balance of, of the power dynamic between the healthcare professional and the patient getting shifted in the direction of the patient. Um, because with knowledge, um, or with the, with the data comes the knowledge and then um, the ability to, to ask the questions. I don't think any of us really have a problem with that, um, but it is knocking down some of the, the paradigms on which our, our healthcare training has, has been developed. Mm. Um, so it's, it's putting the patient in charge. Mm. I think one of, one of the things to come out of COVID in particular in that way is, is telehealth, for instance, and, you know, patients can spend... You know, hours getting across town to an appointment or sitting hours waiting in a waiting room to see a doctor and now um, and particularly for Australia because we've got such a big continent telehealth is really you know opening up opportunities for people mm. to be empowered to see their doctor when it suits them yes and we're doing a lot a lot a lot of it um, really born in COVID um, we weren't doing any video consultations to speak of before COVID the technology's come on of course and so has the uh, receptiveness of both healthcare professionals and patients to remote consultations. Having said that, there's a limit. Um, it's very hard um, to do some things over the phone or on a video call. I think we doctors, healthcare professionals know that you, you gain a lot from an interaction with a patient by being in the same room. Mm, there's um, something you can see in the colour of their skin. The laying on of yeah. hands, um, and that not just diagnostically, but sometimes therapeutically as well. Uh, so we'll we'll need to manage that that um, that technology carefully and make sure we don't lose um, don't lose some of the magic of of, of the of the personal interaction. Mm. I think the other thing about you know medicine is it's becoming more and more standardised with you know variation of care being a big healthcare cost. Um, 
But then the flip side of that is, is, as you say, there's the magic of, you know, bedside manner, laying on of the hands, but also that um, being able to see something that may not be predictable, um, thinking outside the box. Yes, yes. Um, I think, you know, experience that people often can, if not make a diagnosis in the first 10 seconds of a consultation, can be steered towards a diagnosis, uh, often with very little being said. Uh, you can't always do that on a video call. Mm. Um, sometimes you can. And if you know, I think if if the, the doctor and the patient know each other well, um, then it's much easier. But when it's a new patient consultation, there's a limit to what you can do now mm. without being face-to-face. Mm. And so post-COVID, you know, I suppose the NHS is you know, facing the same sorts of issues around the world um, of both rising costs because there's more expensive medicines coming online. There's um, hopefully some savings with regards to better use of technology that we just talked about. Um, but there is, seems to be a bit of a worldwide shortage of um, healthcare workforce. Mm. Um, and I, I actually find that a little bit hard to understand because um, I know there's a lot of um, migration of doctors around the world, um, but then that means that if they're staying home in their own countries, that must be helping their own countries to have you know, better quality and better um, numbers of doctors available. But my understanding is that the WHO has predicted there's something like um, some massive amount of mass, you know, healthcare work, you know, short work care shortages coming coming at speed. Something like 18 mm. million by. 2030. So is the NHS looking to address that particular issue? Because it takes years, doesn't it, to train it, enough it doctors takes, and nurses and our healthcare workers? Yeah, it takes 20 years to train a consultant and a number of years to train a, uh, an experienced nurse. Um, and we don't have enough of them. Uh, and that's partly because we haven't trained enough and partly because we haven't retained enough. Um, and we have to work at both ends of that, I think. Um, the UK is a fantastic place to train um, as a healthcare professional. Um, we've got a lot of people, who, a lot of young people who want to be nurses, want to be doctors. We need to make sure that that enthusiasm gets translated into getting them onto training programs, retaining them on training programs, and then keeping them in work once they that they graduate or qualify. And to do that, I think we're going to need to be more and more flexible um, with the way in which we allow people to work, part time working, um, making sure that. They can they can um, have a family at the same time as having a successful career or rewarding career for them. Um, and we've got we've got things which we need to do on this because we are relying on imported nurses and doctors. Um, and when when and if that supply begins to dry up, as we've seen, um, that can make it really difficult in the NHS. So do you have um, capping of, you know, medical places as we do in Australia at the moment? We do. So obviously to train doctors, it's expensive. Um, so there's a government-led cap on the number of medical students in the UK at any one time. The numbers have gone up in recent years. Um, but you could argue that they've been too low uh, historically uh, because we uh, we struggle to find doctors to fill posts. Mm. And we also cap the number of people we put on to, to training programs um, to become GPs or to become consultants. Um, so it's very competitive to get into those um, areas. And then we find a few years down the track that we don't have enough consultants. So the workforce planning in the NHS is traditionally uh, almost always wrong. Mm. It seems that the way doctors are working is changing. So, you know, our generation are doing more part-time or they're, they're sort of stepping down the amount of work that they're doing which is adding an extra burden 
Yes, um, we've got um, you know very generous pension schemes for doctors in the NHS, um, which at the moment are subject to various uh, taxes, which make higher earning consultants and GPs uh, having to pay um, significant tax bills every year, which they pay in, when they stay in the pension scheme, and that perversely is encouraging people to retire earlier. Uh, I think we're all aware of that, um, but it is a problem. But alongside that, the pandemic, I think, has caused many people to, to reevaluate their approach to work and to work-life balance, um, and it's tired a lot of people out mm. in, in the NHS. Um, so they may be thinking about working less than full-time when previously they were full-time or retiring and stopping altogether um, sooner than they might otherwise have done. We've got to try and stem that tide um, because we can't, we cannot afford in every, in every, in any sense to, to lose that experience um, from the NHS at the moment. So the COVID burnout's really very real, isn't it, for the frontline workers? It's been through an extraordinary two years or three years with COVID. It has. And I think it's been truly life-changing for those who've been looking after patients during this period of time clearly affecting some people more than others. Um, but nobody, I think, can deny the effect it's had on the workforce as a whole. Mm. One of my big passions is prevention, having been a paediatrician and worked in research about, you know, I used to joke, trying to put doctors out of a job and people used to laugh politely. But now, you know, if we can actually do better in prevention, um, you know, that helps the healthcare system, obviously. But the difficulty is that there's so much effort and energy put in, being put into um, the best and brightest providing the best clinical service. Have you got views about, you know, primary, secondary and tertiary prevention, not just, you know, the lifestyle factors of decreasing smoking and drinking and better exercising, but secondary prevention when people come into hospital with a, you know, an initial event, you know, how do we get them home? How do we stop them readmitting? Um, how do we prevent them having the nosocomial infections or the wrong medication or the, the, the poor you know, outcome because they've been in hospital. Hospitals can be dangerous places even for patients. But how do we also make sure that hospitals have less walls so that, you know, hospitals can reach into the homes of, of patients and support them, you know, in situ rather than necessary, necessarily having to relocate to a hospital? We've got, we've got a number of things in our favour in the NHS. Um, um, we don't, in general, have a fee-for-service model. Uh, we have had in secondary care for a number of years. That is beginning to, to change now. And primary care has, has existed on a capitation basis primarily um, for, for, for a long time. So prevention is in everyone's interests uh, in the NHS. That's a big positive um, and one which we have partly utilised, I think. We are, at the moment, we're going through a process of the development of integrated care systems um, <clears throat> where budgets will essentially be pooled um, in every, every ICS in the NHS. And that, at least in theory, gives us a chance to make sure that we fund prevention programmes, population health programmes, uh, as effectively as we provide curative and therapeutic programmes. Um, it also gives us the opportunity to join up primary, secondary, tertiary, community and mental health care uh, far more effectively than we ever have done before because we're all now essentially working uh, for the same group, uh, the integrated care system. All of this is, is absolutely in its infancy, um, but already I think where I sit, I can see those conversations beginning to happen in a way they didn't happen before. And for, for 30 years, really, the NHS has been an internal market 
where we've been competing with each other for resources and for patients. Uh, and that is certainly changing into a much more collaborative um, way of working, um, catalyzed, I think, by some of this, this change in the legis legislation. Mm, mm. Um, in, in Australia, we've got this issue about aged care and healthcare and the intersection between the two. So, um, you know, our aged care system is people entering into aged care are getting older and frailer, and that's because the government has actually implemented hospital in the home or home care packages, I should say, which is supporting people to age at home longer, which is what we know people want. But as a result, the aged care facilities are, you know, filling with people who are older, 50% of them now have um, dementia as well. And so the clinical support that's needed in aged care facilities is becoming much greater. Um, and there's some argument for the systems are too siloed. So the distinction between hospital and an aged care facility sometimes may not be as distinct as we might think. And there's arguments in some ways for having those better, you know, coordinated better together uh, because most of healthcare you know, costs are in the last year of your life effectively. And, you know, I just wonder whether the NHS has a view about how it deals with aged care. Yeah, well, healthcare budgets and social care budgets are usually run separately, um, but are totally dependent on each other. Uh, and at any one time in any hospital in the country, there's a, there's a number of elderly people who are who don't need to be in hospital, but are waiting for a place uh, in the community to, to go to safely. Um, and we've seen um, how difficult it is to uh, to run healthcare systems if social care doesn't have the resources it needs. Uh, and we're still seeing that at the moment. Um, on, on the last year of life question, uh, I think there's a, a debate for society about how we die and how we talk about dying. Um, too many deaths, in my opinion, are still very medicalised. Um, and uh, you know, we've just seen our, our queen pass away. And I, um, whatever the cause of that was, I think many people look on someone who can live to a ripe old age and then die at home, mm. uh, hopefully peacefully, um, in an unmedicalized environment. Uh, that's something most people would want for themselves yeah. and for their families. And yet somehow we we fail to, to, to deliver that for, for most of our patients. Mm. And that's um, a society debate uh, as well as a healthcare professionals debate, I think. Mm. I was on the board of Cabrini Health and we as a board decided that we should activate if anyone comes in for any reason after a certain age, um, that they should be having end-of-life discussions because we know in Australia that particularly things like organ donation or um, end-of-life directives are quite frequently overturned by families who are unaware of the wishes of their loved ones. So having the conversation at home is regarded as incredibly important. Yes, and I think that ties in with the importance of continuity of care. Um, it's really hard to have these conversations with patients when you've not met before. Mm. Um, but if you've got a relationship with a patient as, as a doctor or a nurse uh, and vice versa, if you're a patient and you you know your doctor or your nurse and you know that they know you, then these conversations about what is in one's best interests um, become much easier to have and much more accessible, I think. And there's discussions about that in the NHS here, isn't there? Because GP practices have a certain amount of capitation within their, you know, feeder zone or whatever it's called, but that you have the same named doctor and that's not necessarily been the case. That's right. Although I think um, I don't work in primary care, but I think primary care colleagues would say that a lot of the continuity which they used to 
provide in days gone by has been has been lost somewhat. Um, and that's because patient numbers have gone up, GP numbers have not risen proportionately with that. Um, and the, the simple need to do so much, so many things uh, in primary care, because there's so much more we can do, um, has eroded that some of that continuity which people really value. Uh, and I think we all would like to find a way of getting that back. Mm. Um, I was reading recently about, you know, talking about end of life and um, the, the flip side of who's left behind. And um, in, the, in, in the UK, the rate of litigation, I understand, is very high um, compared to other countries of comparable healthcare systems. Uh, and do, you, do you want to sort of explore why you think that is the case in, in the UK? Is there sort of sense that, you know, the blame game of, of people feeling they're not being heard or that um, there's you know, mishaps that happen that shouldn't have happened and so patients are feeling frustrated and not heard or it seems, you know, an unusual figure? Yeah, I haven't got the, the, those numbers, but, um, you know, my, in my experience, litigation um, is... Uh, there's often a need for uh, often a need for compensation and recognition that, that things have gone wrong. Um, the moment that get in, gets into the courts, the whole thing becomes not just more expensive but more difficult for all parties, including those who are make, making the claim. So, efforts to try to ensure that compensation is appropriate um, and is um, given to people without them having to fight for it. I think is something we would all welcome. And other countries have, have done this better than the UK. Well, Sweden has a no blame litigation system. So yeah, like. yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 or compensation, the judicial system in the UK is an adversarial one. Mm. So you know, one begins to become defensive as soon as one gets into that position. Uh, and that can be really damaging for uh, trust in the system um, and can lead to allegations that we're, you know, we're covering up information which is not what any of us want to do we've got things now um in place legally duty of candor uh, is is a mm. is is in the law in the uk so hospitals and and um healthcare organizations have to tell pa patients when things go wrong and we do um and that transparency i think is uh, is important not just uh, for the way people feel, but actually probably for the amount of litigation which we receive as well. When people, when things go wrong, people often just want some acknowledgement and learning from that mm. um, rather than uh, financial compensation. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose the other thing I'm really interested to hear about how the NHS is, is you know, dealing with things that are coming at us from the future is genetics and um, genetic screening and genomic testing, mm -hmm. diagnostics, therapeutics. How, you know, how is NHS dealing with the, that new sector as it's arising? And, and more generally, how, how do the British people feel about genetic screening, genetic testing and diagnosis? Well, I can't speak for the British people, <laughs> I don't think. Um, but we talked earlier about the, the, the power of, of big data in the NHS. And, um, you know, we've got genome projects across the NHS, which are really powerful just simply because of the numbers of patients which can be recruited into into these studies and that's been fantastic and all over the world we're moving into a world of personalized medicine uh, where your your genetic profile can influence what treatments what drugs you're given for for whatever mm. disease you've got and potentially to prevent diseases or to anticipate them as well and that's incredibly exciting um, 
and it is going to be a revolution or it's becoming a revolution in, in healthcare with the opportunity to improve outcomes, uh, prevent diseases and uh, save money at the same time. I think the NHS is, is, is on board with all this and is embracing these concepts um, and is in a good position um, because of the, the, the ability to share data across the system. Uh, we just got to make sure that the, the bureaucracy which we work in, in a big healthcare system, doesn't get in the way of the innovation. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you this morning, Alistair, and um, thank, thank you, you for your words of wisdom. I suppose we could finish by saying, you know, what would you say was the most enjoyable part about your job being head of an NHS trust? Well, I'm the I'm the group chief medical officer at Barts Health. I'm pleased to say I'm not the chief, group, <laughs> chief executive, which is a job I would not want. Um, and you know, I've had I've worked in the NHS for more than thirty years, um, and I consider it the best healthcare system in the world, bar none. Uh, uh, we are always having a crisis in the NHS, um, but nevertheless, that ability to provide care um, free at the point of need to everyone who lives in the UK, I think is a real privilege and it's one I'm very pleased to be part of. Fantastic. Lovely to speak to you. So thank you thank so you, much. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me. Dr. Katie Allen on An Apple a Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.